number 30 in our study of Mark's gospel. I think last week I said it was week 28, uh, but I got a little bit confused, kind of got things turned around and misnumbered. This is actually week 30. We're in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 34. We're going to go all the way to chapter 9 and verse 1. So we're getting into the ninth chapter uh, this morning, just moving right along in our study of Mark's gospel. And I'm not sure if you have priced tickets to a live sporting event lately. Uh, But if you have, you know that they are not cheap. And if you want to take a family, they're not even in the neighborhood of cheap, right? Uh, They're going to cost you a lot of money. Consider some of these prices. The average regular season ticket price to see the Toronto Maple Leafs is $200. The Maple Leafs haven't won the Stanley Cup since 1967. Hockey is boring anyway. $200. Average regular season ticket price. I offended Don Gabrant this morning. He's from Canada, so anyway, sorry if that involves any of the rest of you. The average ticket price to a regular season New England Patriots game, and this, again, this is average ticket price is $250. Again, that's face value. The average price of watching the World Cup soccer final in Brazil this summer, $990. That's plus airfare and hotel and whatever it takes to get to Brazil. The average face value of a Super Bowl ticket last year, face value, $1,300. And third-party vendors, which is basically the only way you can get them, you know, you're going to find them near that. It's going to be two, three, four times that amount. My dream ticket, a four-day pass to the Masters Golf Championship in Augusta, Georgia, $4,500. I don't know if I'm willing to pay that price. Um, and I share those numbers to say that when it comes to professional you know, sports, it seems that there are no cheap seats. You know, when it comes to HD television, sometimes it's just better to watch from home. At least that's what I've been convincing myself of as these ticket prices just go up and up and up and up. But my real point here is that valuable things come at a price. That's what Jesus has just communicated to his disciples when he told them that he was going to die. He did that in verses 31 through 33 of this same chapter that forgiveness is going to come at an extreme price. And that price is the price of his suffering and his death. Remember last week, I said, to forgive a debt requires suffering. To forgive, we must suffer. The Bible tells us we are in debt to God. We are sinners who have sinned against God, and that puts us in debt to him. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, to do what I've come to do, to take away, or excuse me, to make a way for God to pardon and forgive sinners, I must suffer. Jesus is saying, I must pay the price. I must absorb the cost of forgiveness. And in speaking of himself this way, Jesus shatters every idea the 12 disciples had concerning the Messiah. Every idea was just shattered and ruined. So as soon as that information about his suffering is given out, Jesus calls his disciples to come around him. He calls the crowds in the area to gather near where they can hear, and he begins to speak. Again, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. May God bless the reading of his word. So here in the text before us are the words of Jesus to sinners. And he's inviting them, by extension, he's inviting us to come to him for forgiveness and blessing and peace and joy and eternal life. This is our Lord's invitation. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you are used to invitations. Today, there will be thousands and thousands of of invitations given in churches across America, dozens of them across Enid, Oklahoma. They will be appeals, inviting those who are not following Christ to come to Christ. And maybe you came to Christ at an invitation, you know, if not a public altar call, then maybe at the invitation of someone sharing the gospel with you, just one-on-one. You've probably noticed every week in my message, I extend an invitation to follow Christ. You know, I know that in a crowd of 100 or or 200, there is always someone who needs to follow Jesus. So I want to make sure and offer that invitation. However, I, I think I'm safe in saying that few invitations really follow the pattern of our Lord's invitation here. And what I mean by that is, here in this passage... Jesus tells the gathered crowd that there is an extremely high price attached to being his follower. The words of Jesus in these verses strike a sort of death blow to any sort of cheap, easy, feel-good religion that's being passed off as Christianity. Jesus' invitation is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus' invitation is come and die come and die. Which makes sense. It's perfectly consistent. He had just informed them that as the Messiah, he was going to die. And if they're going to be his followers, then they're going to have to die too. That's his invitation. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It will literally cost everything. Everything. So this morning, I want to show you as best I can what Jesus is saying in his invitation to us to be his disciples. In, this, in, in these verses, Jesus shares a pattern, a paradox, a penalty, and a prophecy. First, a pattern. This is all verse 34. Four actions that make up the pattern of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's go through them. First, he says that he must come after me. This is a verb phrase that's in the present tense. In the present tense, points to continual 
action. This is where it all starts. To come after Jesus is not to pray a sort of one-time prayer or feel convicted at a single point and then say that you're putting your faith in Jesus only to never return to him. To come after Jesus is to consistently, repeatedly, over a long period of time, to come after Jesus. This is what Peter, Andrew, James, and John had done earlier in the Gospel of Mark. They left their nets, they left their boats, they came after Jesus. This is what, the, what, what Levi, the tax collector, had done. He left his tax booth, he came after Jesus. To come after Jesus was a commitment to follow his manner of life, to learn from him, to be his disciple. To come after Jesus is about a radical commitment to leave the old life behind and to follow Jesus into a new and very different life. It's to determine that the life I lead without Jesus is not life. Life is found in Jesus, so I must go after him, and wherever he is, that's where I want to be. That's the first action, to come after Jesus. The second action is to let him deny himself. This phrase literally means to completely disown, to thoroughly separate from someone. It's the same word used to describe Peter's denial of Jesus. Remember Peter denied Jesus after Jesus was arrested? What did Peter say when he denied Jesus? He said, I I don't know the man. That's what it means to deny. The consequence of coming after Jesus is the abandonment of self. It's denying self. But know this, denying self is not the same thing as (laughs) self-denial. What do I mean by that? Well, some people practice self-denial by withholding certain pleasures or staying away from vices or or by fasting or some kind of self-discipline or ascetic practices. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Denying self is far more intense than just mastering your will. When I truly deny myself, I'm saying... I have no will but his will. I have no plans but his plans. I have no wants but what he wants for me. When I deny myself, I give up all my rights and I relinquish all control of my life to the Lord Jesus. I live out 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's a strong phrase there. You are not your own. What an offensive statement that is to people today. That your life, your hopes, your dreams, it all belongs to someone else. You're not your own. Deny yourself. Third action in coming after Jesus take up his cross. This is the simple progression of denying self, but it's even more severe than denying self. It's crucifying self. Interesting, in our previous passage, Jesus did not mention the cross. He did not say that it was by the cross that he would suffer and die, but here, here he mentions it. And everyone standing there would have known what he was talking about everyone. During the lifespan of Jesus, the Romans had killed some 30,000 Jews by way of crucifixion. 
There's a record of 2,000 Jews being crucified in one day. The cross was this ever-present symbol of the brutality of Rome and how Rome dealt with those who were under their rule. When a man went to a cross, he would carry his own crossbeam. He would carry his own cross. We have record of Jesus doing this on the way to Calvary. It was part of the humiliation. It was part of the sentence, part of the suffering. You were required to carry the very instrument that they were going to kill you upon. So when Jesus says that those who come after me must carry a cross, he's not referring to a momentary burden or a temporary setback. You know, we often refer to present sufferings or a person or a thing as this cross that we bear. No, no, that's not the meaning of this verse. To take up your cross means that you're willing to identify yourself with Jesus Christ no matter what it costs you. That's not a side of Christianity you hear about very often. It isn't popular to talk about sacrifice and death and suffering. But that's what Jesus is saying being his disciple is all about. There are no cheap seats. There is a high price to pay for sinners to be reconciled to God and a high price to pay to be a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been paying attention, you know this is a reality for Iraqi Christians today. This is a reality for Syrian and Kurdish Christians today. And when I say today, I mean today. For Christians in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia, you know, we're, we're faced with increasing persecutions, but, but nothing like our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we face ridicule and consternation, and maybe that's increasing, but it's nothing like the Roman audience that was receiving this gospel at the hand of Mark. They knew what a cross was. They knew what it meant to join Jesus in taking up his cross. It was, it was vivid in their minds. This reality is what led Peter to rebuke Jesus in the previous passage. He knew that if Jesus was saying that, that he must suffer, that Peter, as his disciple, must suffer as well. He knew it. So Peter rebuked Jesus. But what do we know ultimately about Peter? Peter suffered and died. He was crucified upside down. He told his executioners that he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner of his Savior. He took up his cross. Last action there in verse 34 in the pattern of discipleship. This one's similar to the first. Follow me. This phrase, similar to come after me, it suggests ongoing action. Jesus is calling his people to be constant followers. Constant followers. Some people follow on Sunday, but they take a different path on Monday. Some people follow the Lord when they need help, but then they take a different path when things get better. Some people follow at sort of these pivotal moments in life, but then their normal routine goes without Jesus. That's not what a disciple looks like. The overall trend of the disciple of Jesus is one who follows him, imitates him, seeks to be like him, is overwhelmed with worship and awe for him. Jesus leads the procession to death, and we follow. So the pattern of discipleship 
involves a price. There are no cheap seats. We don't get off easy. But next in the text, there's a paradox. A paradox. Verses 35 through 37 are the focus of this second point. These verses are, in many ways, an overflow of that initial command to deny yourself. But you can't help but see a paradox in how Jesus presents this. A paradox is what's called an apparent contradiction. Not an actual contradiction, just an apparent one. My favorite paradoxical statement is from Oscar Wilde. He said, I can resist everything but temptation. That's an apparent contradiction, right? Jesus' paradoxical statement is as well. It's there in verse 35. The way to save your life is to lose it. The way to save your life is to lose it. The word for life here is psyche. It's where we get the prefix for psychology. And it's not the word used for your material existence or your physical life. It has to do with your immaterial life, your selfhood, your identity. Essentially, it has to do with your soul. Jesus is therefore saying the way to save your soul is by forsaking your identity. But at the same time, he's not saying we're to lose ourselves in order to lose ourselves. No, there's something to be gained by losing ourselves. And the text says that thing we gain is life. It's real life. We read the questions that begin there in verse 36. We get a hint at what this means. You know, if you're going to follow me, you can't build your identity on gaining things in this world. That's why he asks that question. What's the question? He says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it? The answer is obvious. It's not good for a man to do that. So don't let what the world holds out to you, don't let that be your obsession. You will forfeit your soul if you do that. That's what Peter had done. Again, using Peter as an example. Peter had been thinking that Jesus was going to ascend the throne, take possession of the world, and, and, and rule over it. And what that meant for Peter was that, that he was going to be Jesus' right-hand man. Peter thought he was on the way of gaining the whole world. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm his closest follower. This is going to end great for me. There will be no end to what I possess. That's the folly of Peter. But it's the same with us. It's the same with us. Every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, or if you acquire that, or if you achieve this, then you'll really have done something. Then you'll know you're valuable. You'll get what you want. You'll be satisfied. And the, specific of those, the specifics of those accomplishments, they change with time and place and people, but regardless, every culture I can think of says your identity is performance-based. It's achievement-based. You are what you make of yourself. And here Jesus comes along and says that will never work. He says if you gain the whole world, it won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up what's really broken about you. No matter how much you gain or how much recognition you get, it's never enough to make you sure of who you really are. Because if you're building your identity on the thought that the right person loves me or upon the thought that you've made a great deal of money or that you've received just enough recognition for your work, what happens when those things go away? 
What happens when those things break down on you, which they invariably will break down on you? You lose your sense of identity, don't you? Am I the only one that can relate to this? I hope you can relate because it's here that we see just how radical Jesus is. Here he's teaching us that Christianity is not a matter of saying, okay, I've been a failure, I've been an immoral person, but now I'm going to go to church and become a a moral, decent individual. I used to focus on the right things, now I'm going to get really determined and focus, or I used to focus on the wrong things, now I'm going to get really determined and focus on the right things. That's not discipleship. That's not Christianity. Jesus is saying, I I don't want you to simply shift from one way of performing to another way of performing. It's not about moving from achieving worldly success to achieving spiritual success. No, this is a whole new way to construct an identity. This is an identity not built on performance. No, it's built on Jesus and the gospel. And I love that he included the gospel. He said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. This is so, so important for me. So important for me because I wouldn't know how to think about God if it weren't for the gospel. If it weren't for the cross, I couldn't conceive of a God who loved me. I, I wouldn't be able to conceive of a God who loves me in a, in a tangible way way, if not for the gospel, for the cross, you know, you tell me God loves me, I say, I, I don't know what that means. It's sort of this abstraction. I, I can't get my arms around that. But because of the cross, because of the gospel, I know something very, very important. I know that Jesus lost his identity so that I can have one. Let me say it again. I know that Jesus lost his identity so that I can have one. The high king of heaven, he left his throne, he was born into a sick world, lived in poverty, subjected himself to ridicule and and shame, allowed himself to be arrested and mocked and crucified, was alienated from God the Father. Talk about losing your life. Jesus is not calling his disciples to do anything he has not already done, and he's done it to pray prove his love for you he proved it there and once you see the son of god loving you this way you be you begin to get a type of inner strength that actually belongs to you it's no longer rooted in the pride of accomplishment or the pride of morality or success you're actually freed from those things the old approach to identity is gone it goes away you lost it. Or perhaps you just lost sight of it. Because all your sights, your entire vision, is on the beauty of the gospel of Christ. You see this? Nobody explained this better than C.S. Lewis. If you read the last page of his classic book, Mirror Christianity, he comments on how, how Jesus makes this call, this call to lose yourself in order to find yourself. Lewis writes, the, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. 
The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. He goes on to say something to the effect that that if you go to Jesus just to get a new personality, you still haven't really gone to Jesus. Your real self will not come out as long as you are looking for it. It will only emerge when you're looking for him. It's all wrapped up in him. In losing your life, you find it. Because you can only find it in him. Taking up your cross, losing your life, denying yourself, all of that mean, all of it means to die to the control that you so desperately want over your own life. Die to using Jesus for your agenda and start living off his agenda. Churches are full of people, full of people who have Jesus as sort of an appendage to their life. He's an extra. He's, a, he, he's an add-on. And having Jesus that way, it, it might make you a solid citizen or a good employee and even a pretty decent church member, but it doesn't really make you a disciple. Don't take on Jesus as your consultant. He's your king. You don't, you don't take the advice of a king. You bow to a king. You do what he says. And I say that with such earnest because of what Jesus shares in verse 38. And I'm going to plow through these last two points swiftly. But verse 38, summary of it is, if you're ashamed of Jesus today, then you'll be rejected by him at the second coming. It's a pretty strong statement by Jesus. The word ashamed in this context means unwilling because of fear or shame or disapproval. It refers to those who will not come to Jesus and who will not follow Jesus because they refuse to identify with him or with his message. And again, as I said at the outset, when a person comes to Jesus and begins to follow him, there is a price. There's a price. Not everyone's willing to pay that price. Bishop J.C. Ryle, he says, there are thousands of men who would face a lion or storm a breach. They fear nothing. And yet they would be ashamed of being thought religious. They would not dare to avow that they desired to please Christ rather than man. Amazing indeed is the power of ridicule. Incredible is the bondage in which men live to the opinion of the world. The story of Thomas Cranmer is a powerful one. Cranmer wrote the book, the beloved book of Common Prayer. And you may not realize it, but I actually use the book of Common Prayer every week in our worship services. But here's what I read this week on Thomas Cranmer. On March 21st, 1556, a crowd of curious spectators packed University Church in Oxford, England. They were there to witness the public recantation of one of the most well-known English reformers, a man named Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer had been arrested by Roman Catholic authorities nearly three years earlier. 
At first, his resolve was strong, but after many months in prison, under daily pressure from his captors, and the imminent threat of being burned at the stake, the reformer's faith faltered. His enemies eventually coerced him to sign several documents renouncing his Protestant faith, documents that they would spread widely for people to see. In a moment of weakness, in order to prolong his life, Cranmer denied the truths he had defended throughout his ministry, the very principles upon which the Reformation itself was based. Roman Catholic Queen Mary I, known in church history as Bloody Mary, she viewed Cranmer's retraction as a mighty trophy in her violent campaign against the Protestant cause. But Cranmer's enemies wanted more than just a written recantation. They wanted him to declare it publicly. And so on March 21st, 1556, Thomas Cranmer was taken from prison and brought to University Church. Dressed in tattered clothing, the weary, broken, and degraded reformer took his place at the pulpit. A script of his public recantation had already been approved, and his enemies sat expectantly in the audience, eager to hear his clear denunciation of the evangelical faith. But then the unexpected happened. In the middle of his speech, Cranmer deviated from his script. To the shock and dismay of his enemies, he refused to recant the true gospel. Instead, he bravely recanted his recantations. Finding the courage he had lacked over these previous months, the emboldened reformer announced to the crowd of onlookers, I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing, he said. More than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life, and that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and I refuse, as things written with my hand, which were contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart. I wrote them for the fear of death and to save my life. Cranmer went on to say that if he should be burned at the stake, his right hand would be the first to be destroyed since it had signed those recantations. Chaos in the church ensued. Moments later, Cranmer was seized, marched outside, burned at the stake. True to his word, he thrust his right hand into the flames so that it might be destroyed first. As the flames encircled his body, Cranmer died with the words of Stephen on his lips, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. A man who dealt with shame being ashamed of Christ, being ashamed of the gospel, ultimately not being ashamed, and Christ certainly not ashamed of Thomas Cranmer. We'll end with verse 1 of the ninth chapter. It's a prophecy. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. We see that, and it's pretty reasonable to ask, what does he, what does he mean? Does he, does he mean his resurrection? And that's, is that the kingdom of God coming with power? Does he mean the day of Pentecost? Is that the kingdom of God coming with power? The, the subsequent growth of the church? Perhaps he means his transfiguration. That's the next scene in the narrative. He goes up on the mountain and God shows up with Moses and Elijah. Is that the kingdom of God? Honestly, I'm not sure the specific event that he's referring to here. It could be one of those things I just mentioned. It could mean all of those things I just mentioned. But whatever it means, I think we can say the kingdom of God begins with weakness and surrender. 
It begins with giving away the rights to our own life. It begins, the kingdom of God in your heart begins with admitting that you need a Savior. We need someone to fulfill all the righteous requirements and pay for our sin. To admit that is to admit weakness. The reason our discipleship starts in weakness is because our Savior started in weakness. First, by becoming human. Second, by going to a cross. The kingdom begins there, but it won't end there. Someday when Jesus returns, he will usher in a renewed creation. Love will totally triumph over hate. Life will thoroughly triumph over death. It will be power like you can't imagine. But reading the gospel, we see that it begins in weakness. Looking at our lives, how we come to faith in Christ, it, be, it begins in weakness. Not in saying, I'm rich and I have a lot to offer, but, oh, I'm desperately poor. I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer. A right view of Messiahship leads to a right view of discipleship. We do ser- serve a king but he's a king going to a cross. He's a king that's going to be crucified. And if we follow him, we have to be crucified too. Just as Galatians 2.20 says, For I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'll close again with C.S. Lewis. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes, and in the end, the death of your whole body. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. What a blessing it would be to lose your life. Do you see that as a blessing? Everything else thrown in. Don't cling to life. Cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Overwhelm us with your love. It's it's only by seeing and realizing and knowing your love that we would make any sort of declaration that says, I want to deny myself, I want to leave myself, I want to cling only to Jesus Christ. For your sake, for the gospel's sake, help us to just build on that to be people who have given our lives away for something so much bigger than ourselves. Lord, we are small. You are great. Make us weak people so that we could be strong in you. Thank you for this church family, for what we've been able to do here today. Strengthen us as we live a week for you and for your name. Keep us from shame. Give us strength as we stand in the way of ridicule bring us back together um, if it be your will or if you tarry. 
in Christ's name we pray. Amen.